How many remember the TV show What Not to Wear? Big What Not to Wear fans in here? Yeah. I had to watch that because uh, I had three daughters, and that's just the way it was back in the early aughts, and, and you know, was, uh, that show was going to be on, and so I, I got a sense of what the show was about, and, and, the, and the things that kept repeating in every episode. They would usually take a lady, didn't have to be, her friends nominated her as the worst dressed person they knew, which is always nice of your friends, but there was an upside that if, you, that if you managed to get on the show, they would give you $5,000, and they would give you a makeover, they would give you a... Uh, education on, on like what to wear for your body type and your coloring and all those things, you know. And, uh, and then they'd drop them off in New York City and they would be, let them out in the most expensive, they'd get like six items of clothing with their $5,000. <laughs> Seriously, they, were, they didn't get very much, you know, and it's like, okay, keep buying stuff like that when you're done. But um, the funny thing to me was that when the show ended, when, well, when each episode ended, as they were interviewing the person, it was invariably, I think maybe I can remember one kind of exception to the rule, but for the most part, these, these ladies would just be like, oh, this has just changed who I am. It's just changed me. This outward thing has just changed me inwardly, which I kind of doubted. Like, I don't think it really changed you inwardly as much as you probably think, but I get it. I get that, that clothes make you feel like a new person. A fashion can fashion you anew in one sense. We are new in Christ. We, this whole deal with baptism, I mean, we talked about that and how that demonstrates and sets that forth. We put on the new self that is being renewed in the image of God through Christ and all of the rest of that. Last week, we used the, uh, the imagery of putting on, uh, I'm sorry, of owning. This week, we're going to talk about putting on. So we were talking about owning it last time. We're really kind of, it's a continuation as we look at this, but we're kind of going with a different metaphor of a wardrobe that we have in Christ that we are to put on. So that's the big idea. Put on your new clothes in Christ. We'll go dancing. No, we won't go dancing, but put, put them on. There's good use for this. There's two big motivators today that we're going to look at. And the first motivator is because you are God's people in Christ. Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Notice the third word in the, in the order of things. Put on then. Put on then, which could be translated put on therefore. So it's going back. It's saying in light of, of who you now are. And where were we? Last time, where did we leave off? That We were talking about this new new people that we are, not just new individuals, but that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, circumcised, uncircumcised, Scythian, barbarian, all are one in Christ Jesus. We are a new people. So when it says here, chosen ones, holy and beloved, he is pointing to the people of God, the church, and saying, church, Here's who you are now in Christ. Therefore, you are God's holy, chosen, and beloved people that should dress a certain way. Now, you might not pick up on this. You very well might not catch this. But if you were a Jewish Christian in that day, or if you, if you were a Jewish person today, and you were to pick up a New Testament and read this, you'd be like, yeah, wait a second here, buddy. All right, Paul, what are you pulling here? What exactly are you saying? Because the Jewish believer would have known, wait, this is the language of the Old Testament 
concerning God's old covenant people, the Jews. Yeah, how, what an appropriate topic today. Um, but yeah, that, that's what God had said. Now he's saying it of the church. He's saying it of this diverse group of Jews and Gentiles and all the rest combined all into one person in Christ. He says, you are this chosen, beloved, holy people. Look at what it says of Israel. This is going back to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 7. It says, for you are a people holy to the Lord. Mark the word holy. You don't have to, but mark it in your head. Holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you. Mark that word, chosen to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So you're select. You're the only group. You're the chosen ones. And then he goes on. It was not because you were both more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you. Mark the word love. And there you, there you have it. There you have those three things. We now in Christ can say of ourselves, because we're in Christ, that we are God's chosen people. Yeah. Mind blown, right? Should be. It should be. If you really know your Bible and you've spent any time in the Old Testament, that should blow you away. You're ethnically Jewish? Great. Congratulations. That's wonderful. Doesn't mean anything in this regard. Doesn't mean anything. You're Scottish, you know, <laughs> right? Oh, and you got that whole thing going? Great. Doesn't mean a thing. Doesn't mean a thing. What, is, what matters? What matters is that you are now in Christ. And because you are in Christ, you are a chosen people. There are no second-class citizens. There are no first-class citizens in the people of God. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Think of being something like a Navy SEAL. Uh, we, have, we have someone from the Army today, so I should have put, picked the Army Rangers, I guess. But uh, think about what it takes to become a Navy SEAL. What it takes to have the honor of wearing that trident. Eh? Like, not anyone can get that. First, you have to want it, and then you have to go through incredible just stress and rigor, and, and a lot of people just cannot make it. It's, it's just too much. And then a very select, rare few pass through all those gates, and finally they end up as a Navy SEAL. They have the right to own that uniform and wear that uniform, and no one else does. No one else does. If you, you know, get on eBay and buy yourself a Navy, don't do that. It's a really, like, I think we're all smart enough to know you're not supposed to do that. But if you could, if you could get a hold of somebody's used Navy SEAL uniform and you were to put it on and go to, like, a SEAL bar and try to pretend, bad things would happen to you. Just bad things would happen to you. That's called stolen valor. You, you don't do that. You have to belong. As believers in Jesus Christ, we belong. We belong to him. We are part of God's chosen, beloved, holy people. And we've been given with that a uniform, a whole, a whole wardrobe, in fact, that we are to put on. We are holy, chosen, and beloved people of God. We are the church, the body of Christ. Christ is all and in all. When Christ was up on the mountain being transfigured, do you remember what they saw him wearing? All clothed in white, right? Fast forward to the book of Revelation and we see the great multitude from every tribe and nation and language all standing there before the throne. And how are they dressed? In white. 
It's eerily similar, isn't it? We, we, we have that through Christ. If you have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, that is you. This is who you are. And therefore, you ought to wear what you've been given. Yeah? I mean, why wouldn't you? You get all that great. I mean, who would go on want not to wear, go spend $500 on a pair of jeans in New York, and then never wear it? That wouldn't make, it wouldn't make any sense, would it? So that's, the, that's our first motivation. It's, it's who we are in Christ, and we're entitled to that. Second motivator, and I think this is, this is the one that I enjoy the most of the two, because you want to wear that which reflects the beauty of Christ. See, if we're new in Christ, there's an analogy between us and Christ. More than an analogy, there's a spiritual analog that's actually real that that we correspond to Christ because we are in Christ. We are bonded to him. We are connected to him. These things that we're going to look at that are part of our uniform are true of him. And they are true of us secondarily because it's, it's Christ. This whole thing that we're going to look at describes Christ, but then it becomes the Christ wardrobe that we put on. Yeah? And when, and to the extent that we wear these things, we reflect back on his beauty. So, first of all, compassionate hearts reflect his beauty. Compassionate hearts. The old King James was a lot closer uh, to, the, to the actual uh, wording in Greek, although not something that we would normally speak of today. Uh, it was translated, I believe, bowels of mercy. Bowels of mercy. We don't really talk that way anymore, so uh, they changed it uh, to compassionate hearts to get across the idea. But the, you know, in, in the Greek world, and, and I think the Jews as well, they, when they thought of that seat of emotion, that seat of feeling, where you would feel mercy, that was your bowels. You had bowels of mercy toward other people. And again, it's, it's, this, it's sort of p- the same thing as pity or mercy. When you see someone that is, uh, is in a bad way, they are in some way distressed or impoverished, we look at the news right now with what's coming out of Israel, you look at that and you're, well, you're probably feeling enraged on one hand. There's part of, part of you that's just enraged, but when you look at the people that are suffering, what do you feel? That, that's a compassionate heart. That's the bowels of mercy. Jesus was full of compassion. You know that. I, I mean, I'm not telling you anything new on that deal, Right? Jesus was compassionate. Let me give you an example. It says when he, in Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now you might think, as you look at that and as you try to track back to your extensive knowledge of the Gospels, uh, you may think, now then what did he do? Did he, did he then um, take the children to himself and put them on his lap? Was that, no. Was it, was it then healing of blind people or raising the dead? Do you know what the next thing was that, it, that he said? He told his disciples to pray that the Lord would send laborers into his harvest field. In other words, this, this is when Jesus feels compassion toward these people that are lost, like lost sheep, his first and most primary compassion is for their souls. He wants them to be one to Christ. That he wants them to come into his kingdom. Think of com- the compassion that Jesus has shown you. Think of, think of the compassion that you have come to know. Like blind Bartimaeus, you at some point in your life cried out to Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
You cried out to him. You realized that you were in a desperate situation. All at once, for the first time in your life, you were overwhelmed by a sense of the sinner that you actually are. You saw it in stark relief. You realized you were lost. You realized you were hellbound. And, and in that moment, you cried out, Lord, have mercy on me. And he had mercy on you. And once you go through that gate that says, whoever wills into the kingdom of God, you turned around and you looked and it said, chosen before the foundation of the earth. And you went, wow, that's the mercy of Christ to you. And all that tender mercy and compassion of Christ is not only true of him toward you, not only is it his gift to you in terms of being merciful toward you, it's also his gift to you that you are to wear. It is part of that which you clothe yourself. You clothe yourself with the merciful compassion of Jesus. You say, well, I thought some people had the gift of mercy and some didn't. (laughs) Well, some people are particularly merciful. But all who are in Christ have this item of clothing. When we see someone that seems to be turning away from their profession of faith, what do we do? That's a lost sheep. Do you feel compassion? Do you go, well, you know, that's just them. Who cares? Huh? I get there's more, there's more Christians that I can fellowship with. I don't, no, we go, you, you want to go after them. The compassion of Christ for the lost, is should wanna, we should want to go after them. If we know someone that's not a Christian and they will listen to anything you say, you want that opportunity to call them to Christ. You feel compassion for their eternal soul. Wear that. Wear that and bring Glory to Christ. And then kindness reflects his beauty. Kindness reflects his beauty. Kindness at its root means goodness or benevolence. There's that pure willingness of just doing good to other people. Jesus is the picture of goodness and kindness. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Man, there's a lot there, isn't there? But notice it started with the goodness and kindness of God, our Savior. It it comes, it flows out of that desire and that nature of doing good. This you have experienced in Christ. You know who I thought of when I was trying to think about, like if you were to look this up in the dictionary, whose picture you should see, other than Jesus, obviously. That one's probably taken already. But um, you know who I thought of? Do you remember uh, A Christmas Carol? You remember Scrooge? Not Scrooge. Um, That wasn't who I was thinking of. Um, But do you remember his first boss? Like, the, it's, it's that ghost of, of Christmas past that takes him back, and he, and he gets to relive that for a moment, and he's brought. And there's old Fezziwig, I heard it. There's old Fezziwig, and he's like, I mean, it, Dickens just gives us this picture of someone that just is so utterly good and kind and joyful. And, and in Scrooge's own self, at, as a young man, he looks at Fezziwig as just this an amazing human being. Like he's, I think he says to one of his coworkers, he's like, he could make our life miserable if he wanted to. But he chooses not to. He chooses to just to give us all this good. And Scrooge thinks, okay, I resolve in my heart that when I'm a boss someday, I'll be like that. <laughs> he, somehow he didn't quite make it there, did he? Until, until much, much later uh, and, and with a lot of uh, effort to get him there. Isn't it good that as Christians we don't forget the goodness of Christ and so we're always just full of kindness and 
it just flows through us every moment. You that know us. (laughs) Oh, but that's the thing. See, this is the deal. It is that we see the beauty of Christ. The goodness of God, our Savior, saved us. He, he was good toward us. And, and this, Christian, has been given to you. It's in your wardrobe, right? Just picture your, your spiritual wardrobe, and you go over, and you, I know some of you, you've got large wardrobes that you can get lost in. You end up in Narnia if you're not careful, because there's deep, deep wardrobes, and you go in there, and you push back the furs, and there's all that, and you look, and sure enough, there's goodness. It's, it's hanging there. It, it is yours in Christ. We want that to reflect his beauty. Humility reflects his beauty, which is kind of weird when you think about Jesus. Like, how can Jesus be humble? We know he's, he knows the truth. He is the truth. So how could he be humble? Well, see, that's a misunderstanding that we have about humility. We think that we think of really humility as almost a false humility, like, well, you can't know anything good about yourself. Look, there are good things about you, and and I'm sure your spouse is constantly telling you about those good things, and you hear them, and you're like, okay, yep, 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 that works. Um, But but humility is not knowing some is not denying what is good about you. Look at what it says in Peter. Peter even uses the same analogy. Look at this: clothe yourself. There it is. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, does that clue you in a little bit on what humility is? Humility is the opposite of arrogance and pride. It's the opposite of an overinflated sense of one's own importance. So Jesus, in that sense, is full of humility. Did he think less of himself? No. Did he think he was less gifted? No. But here, if you want to see the the verse that really kind of nails it down about how Jesus could be humble, look at Mark 10.45. And here's the context. I'll give you the arrogant context of the background. James and John are fighting for the spot next to him, left in the right hand. They're arguing in favor of themselves. They want to be big shots in the kingdom. And Jesus says, "Um, that's not how it is in the kingdom. Do you remember that passage? He says, that's not how it is. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you must become a servant to all. And then he says this. He says, for even the Son of Man, that's himself he's talking about, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So being humble is is somebody that, that wants to serve others, that has that desire to put other people's needs ahead of their own. That's Jesus. He took on the form of a servant by putting a towel around his waist as an example to his disciples, and he went around and he, and he washed their filthy feet. That was an act of service. And our humility is supposed to be an aspect of our union with Christ. It's supposed to flow out of that. We see that in G- you know, Jesus makes that plain. Like, if you're my disciple, then you're going to do this as I have done to you. Paul makes this exact same point in Philippians. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition. That's the opposite of humility, right? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
And then he gives the logic of that. He gives us the logic in, in the next verse. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Just stop there for a moment because I want you to see that. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So you have that, right? It's your, it is yours. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not equate or I'm sorry, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. There you have that serving idea again. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's the model. Christ is the model of what humility likes, looks like. Behold him as he is born. And you, we know the story, how he was born. He was born in humility. He was born in poverty. He, he showed himself to whom? Lowly shepherds. He came serving, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, tirelessly serving, teaching, healing, driving out demons. There were times when he could not get away, and and he finally had to break free just for some alone time with God. And then the very next moment, he crosses the sea, and there's a crowd waiting on him, and he has compassion on them, and he serves them. That is ours. You say, that doesn't look much like me. Okay, but it's yours. In principle, it has been given to you in Christ. You own that. It's in your closet. You have to put it on. Meekness reflects his beauty. Meekness is powerful gentleness. Meekness is powerful gentleness. It's power under control. Gentleness is is a lack of willingness to use strength to crush that which is weak. That's gentleness. It's, 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 it's a giant holding a, a butterfly carefully in his hands. That's, that's the idea of gentleness. Jesus was so meek that it says in Matthew 12 that he would not break a bruised reed. He would not uh, put out a smoldering wick. Do you hear the gentleness of that? It's saying here's this, this, this fragile thing and God's servant will not crush that, will not Put that out. That's, that is the gentleness of Christ. Listen to him. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You see, he's inviting you into that relationship, that union with Christ, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. There you have it, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When I read that, when I read that invitation of Christ, I almost want to be lost again from Christ so that I could run to him again and experience that for the first time. When I read that, I don't understand how anyone, but I know it's, it's, it's a different reality, but I don't understand how a lost person can hear Jesus calling them, come to me, and not sense that driving desire. There's Jesus saying, look, I know, I know the burden you bear. I know that's heavy because I understand what sin is, and I've carried the, the sin of the world upon my back. I know the weight of it. You're carrying sin like that. I know that burden, I, I, I want to take that burden away. In union with me, this gentle and lowly one, you're going to find rest for your soul. How, how does anybody fail to run to that? Maybe they need to see more of it in his people 
in order to believe it when they get to his word. I don't know. I don't know, but this is ours, brothers and sisters. We are, we are to have that meekness. Patience. Well, we'll skip over patience. I don't think I have the time. <clears throat> patience. Let's talk about patience. That's, that, that, that reflects his beauty. Uh, the, the Greek word makrothumia, I'm going to read the lexical definition because it's good, uh, which is just saying the dictionary, the Greek dictionary. A state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune and without complaint or irritation. You say, well, that's not at all what I thought patience was. I thought you were going to say getting frustrated, you know, when things aren't going the way I want them to or quick enough to. It's not really, we use it almost exclusively for that idea of waiting on something. But patience really has a lot more to do with the old word long-suffering. So you, to put it in the common vernacular, you're putting up with someone. Yeah? You're putting up with, how many of you have put up with too much by now? You're like, I put up too much with you kids. That, yeah, you're, I'm losing my patience. Yeah, that's what we're saying, right? We're like, I can't put up with you anymore. And it just, it just goes, it bleeds right into verse 13. It kind of, 13 almost reads like a summary explanation. Like, well, you probably don't understand patience, so let me explain it to you. Bearing with one another, that you're putting up with, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Jesus endured provocation and, um, and didn't answer back in kind. Look what it says in Hebrews. It says, consider him, this is supposed to spur us on, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Like, well, when did Jesus ever have to put up with anything? Yeah, they, st- they plated this, they plated a crown of thorns. Have you, have you been out in various wild parts of uh, Kansas and come across any thorn bushes or thorn trees? They plated a crown of thorns and they shoved that down upon his beautiful head. And the blood flowed across his face. They beat him till his back was an open wound. They put a purple robe on him. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. They mocked him. They took him to Golgotha. They hung him on a cross. And as he was dying for our sins, the people that stood there mocked him. They said, Oh, he saved others. Let him save himself. And similar kinds of things they hurled at him. And in that moment, one of those moments where it grew quiet, maybe when the sky was growing dark, they heard him say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is the patience of Christ toward us. And he says, take that on. Put that on. He's like, well, I don't have that. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. If you're in Christ, you have that. But you must put it on. It's yours in Christ. Finally, love reflects his beauty. Colossians uh, 3.14 now. And above all, put uh, all these, sorry, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love brings it all together. I think that's what it's kind of saying. Love pulls it all together. In design, and uh, I fought really hard to come up with a single word in, from the world of design and art and to, to find this. I couldn't. 
but you know, there's a concept in design, which is that there are certain thematic elements that you can take hold of. And you can take a bunch of things that if you just looked at them, they might not all quite, you wouldn't understand how they all fit together, but then you, you introduce this element. Ladies, you, you, you can track this if, even if the men aren't following, right? Yeah? You just introduce that one element, and all at once it just all comes together and it makes sense in its totality. That's what, that's what Paul says love is about. Love ties it all together. Think about 1 Corinthians 13. The greatest of these is love. Or, or you could think about um, Galatians 5 where it talks about the fruits of the Spirit. What's the chief, chief virtue of all of those, the chief fruit? Love. Love, joy, peace, patience. It, it, it all flows out of that cardinal virtue. virtue. Giving you a, a textbook definition of love at this point wouldn't be very helpful, I think. Uh, there, I could come up with one. Love's complex and it's kind of hard to define, but let me, let me suggest John 3.16. Um, actually, not John 3.16. Let's go with 1 John 3.16. Both of them work. You could take John 3.16, but let's look at 1 John 3.16. That might not be as, as well known to you, but it kind of talks about itself as a definition of love. It says, by this we know love. I'll just stop there for a second. He's saying, how do we know what love is? He's saying, this is how. This, this is the definition. This is how we understand love. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Christ's love is perfect. We see it when he cries out, it is finished. When his saving work for us has been accomplished there on the cross, when he lays down his life for us, his friends. Do you know if you are in Christ, you can say that, that you are his friend, that he laid down his life for you. We are given a beautiful garment at that point, a whole wardrobe, if you will. And it all coalesces in that, in that, in that word love. Wasn't paid, you know, nobody went to New York City and, and bought it with $5,000, probably be 20000 a day, but no. What bought it, what purchased it was his life blood poured out for you. Do you see why we want to take these things on? They're Christ. They express who he is. They show forth his beauty. We are his people. We have been brought into union with Christ. And so, all of these garments that clothed Christ become ours. They are for us to put on. And God wants to do that in our lives. And we should yield ourselves to wearing those things so that Christ might be adorned with all the beauty that he has. If you don't have Christ, um, if you don't have his rest, the gospel is very simple. The gospel is that Christ came into the world and died for sinners. He died, he was buried, he rose on the third day so that all who trust in him might have eternal life. That's the gospel. But I, I want to give you an invitation to the gospel. You don't have to come forward. That's not required. What's ha- it, it has to be what's happening in the heart. So here's the invitation. I'm going to quote Jesus again, and please listen. Please listen. He says, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. You're weighed down by sin. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. He's inviting you into relationship with himself. For I am gentle 
and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All you have to do, sinner, is know your condition. You just have to, for a moment, feel and realize that there's something that is weighing you down, and it's called sin. You're, you're, you're separated from a holy God. And just as we said during the baptism, the only thing that will save you from sin and eternal punishment is faith in Jesus Christ. His grace operating through faith. Turn to him. Hear his call. Listen to that call and take him today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when we look at that list, on the one hand, it's daunting and it seems beyond us. At, on our first instinct, I'm sure each of us has one, some of those words just are foreign to us. They feel foreign because it's not our nature. But Lord, you've given us a new nature. You've given us a new self. And you say that we're being renewed into the image of our creator. You say that we have died to our old life and that we've been raised with Christ. So Lord, help us to take on these virtues and graces that are part of your beauty so that you may be served by us, that people may be turned toward you through the beauty that you do in our lives. Lord, may we wear those things. And Lord, I pray that you draw the sinner to yourself, that such a one would hear your gentle invitation and see your grace and see your goodness and kindness that will not break a bruised reed or put out a smoldering wick, and that such a one today would turn to you and believe in you and have life in your name. And we ask it in your name. Amen.